What's up, everyone? My name is Michaela Nemhard, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's get ready to hear the word. Momentum is about movement. It's taking a step into godly purpose, investing ourselves into the kingdom, taking the momentary to eternity. It's something to be gained. It's a turning motion to shift, but always shifting forward. It's transforming. Our story is unfolding into a new yet familiar adventure. It's like holding a memento while recognizing the hand of the artist in all the new things in unlikely places. Saying what God's done before will happen again, but it won't look like what we're used to. It's a surprising plan only God could create. It feels like revival. It feels like anticipation. And it looks like His invitation. And we accept. So let us hang on with holy expectation and know that God is calling us to greater things. We just have to say yes. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning and welcome back or welcome for the first time. So glad that you're joining us. Again, you might be at one of our physical locations. You might be watching on our online site. You might be watching this days, months, or years later, uh, part of another community or no faith community at all, no matter who you are, where you're from, we're so glad you are here today. Now, uh, this is a really exciting, profound, engaging part of the book of Acts. And again, no matter where you're coming from today, you're going to probably find yourself in the story in some form. Now, we're moving from actually the very first murder of the very first Christian for being a Christian, the spilling of the first Christian's blood, to the clashing of supernatural kingdoms, to the mass conversion of all sorts of people in Samaria, and now we're moving to a new place. Now, I don't know if you've caught this, if you've hung out with us during this series, but time and time again, it sort of goes from group to individual, and individual then back to group, and it's going to focus once again right down to an individual. There's a person who's coming from the far south. God is active in furthering his work, and Luke now begins to record and wrestle down what in the world is the early church going to do with the inclusion of non-Jewish people? The church hasn't struggled with that or clarified its attitude to the rest of the known world yet. Now, God, amazingly, is always a step of everyone, including even the church. And God sovereignly initiates a new chapter of the church. This is his holy agenda. He's reversing the effects of Babel. He's starting to restore Eden. He's bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is already fully in heaven. Now, we need to slow and we need to sort of see, embrace, hear, understand, feel the radical nature of what's about to unfold in front of us. If you've done church for a very long time, we miss the power of this, the earthquake of this. And actually, we've all benefited from this moment. So this is how the story continues in the book of Acts. Remember, if you're brand new, the book of Acts is the historic record of the first 30 years of the church. So there's a guy named Philip. Philip was one of the seven deacons that was called to deal with the serving crisis back in chapter 6. Then we were taken to this terrible moment, the killing of Stephen, who also was a deacon. That's the murder of the very first Christian in history. 
And then the whole church is attacked. It runs for its life. And while all these Christians are running for their lives, Philip runs and he goes to Samaria. And there he was used by Jesus to do miracles and healings and deliverance. And he proclaimed the story of Jesus of Nazareth and the message of hope uh, burst out. And here's the crazy thing. The Samaritans were Jewish enemies. They were actually considered blood enemies. And yet, because of the persecution, Philip runs for his life. He ends up in Samaria. He proclaims the good news of Jesus to them. And though he'd been taught his whole life to avoid them, now he's with them and they become followers of Jesus. Again, don't forget this. We keep missing the scandal. Philip's an Orthodox Jew. He'd been taught his whole life the Samaritans were half-breeds and dogs and spiritual, well, heretics. And now, because of the power of Jesus, they're now brothers and sisters. Amazing. But they're still half-Jewish. But now we come to the question, what do we do with all the rest of the ethnic groups that aren't Jewish? Jews who lived throughout the whole Roman Empire would have been taught their whole lives, you've got the Ten Commandments, you've got the Torah, you've got the prophets from Genesis to Malachi, you've learned from childhood God's Word, you're a God's elected people, so actually you're better because you're called. I mean, you actually know who God is. You know God's will for the world. You know God's will for families and friends and relationships. You can discern right and wrong, which makes you spiritually secure and superior to all other ethnic groups and religious movements. You're far beyond the ignorant masses, Greeks and Romans, and they used to call them barbarians, that flocked to idols and politics and, and demons. I mean, at the time of Jesus, many, if not most Orthodox Jews, believed that everyone else on earth would be judged except the Jewish race. There's a common tradition that was held that Abraham itself would sit at the gate of hell and he'd just keep all Jews out, regardless of deed and belief or belief, unbelief. It doesn't matter. It was try for the Jew. He allegedly said these words, they who are the seed of Abraham, those who are ethnically Jewish, according to the flesh, shall in any case, even if they be sinner, unbelieving, disobedient towards God, they will share in God's eternal kingdom. So many, if not the vast majority of Orthodox Jewish people believe they're immune from God's wrath simply because they are Jews. So a righteous, devout, law-keeping Jew would never, 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 never dream that he or she would be under the same condemnation or have the same spiritual condition of non-Jews who were sleeping around and doing all the sexual stuff and worshiping demons and idols. That's not us. We're elect and they're not. I mean, one very famous prayer that might offend you that was prayed by Jewish men around the time of Jesus time and time again is, Blessed are you, O King of the universe, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a non-Jewish slave or a woman. But then, between Acts 2 and Acts 6, Philip and tens of thousands of other devoted, religiously committed Jewish people realized that they needed a Savior too. Actually, they started realizing that everyone needed a savior, the most religious person on earth, the most pagan, everyone in between. Thousands of years of religious presupposition and presumption are being overcome by Jesus and his message. Think back to the beginning of our series, God through Peter, the very first Christian sermon, all the way back in Acts 2, which happened, remember, during Pentecost, one of the grand feasts of Orthodox Jews, and hundreds of thousands of Jews are gathering in Jerusalem. He stands up, he starts preaching, and it's like God put up a huge signpost and said, stop, you're in trouble too. <laughs> you need saving too. You need good news too. 
everything you keep trusting in, ethnic background, religious activity, circumcision, that's the sign of the Jewish faith, having the Old Testament, obeying it apart, will not take care of the problem of sin, death, rebellion, or brokenness, separation from God. There is no double standard. Jewish people and non-Jewish people all need saving, all need a Savior. Philip had experienced actually what Paul would later write in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we are all justified freely by God's grace through redemption that came by the Messiah, Christ Jesus. See, only when you understand Philip's story, or, or Peter's story, or John's story, even Jesus' mom's story, Mary, do you begin to see the power and the radical nature and the God-given, out-of-the-box love that God has for the whole world. I mean, what's really wild when you begin to truly understand the average Jewish person's worldview of religion 2,000 years ago, and then you listen to Jesus' last words, it's quite shocking. I mean, what was Jesus' last words before his ascension? Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of just Jewish people. No, of all ethnic groups. What? baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Or Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit lightens on you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. No problem. Judea, no problem. Samaria, really? Those guys are spiritual half-breeds, and they've set up a bunch of false stuff. And at the ends of the earth, are you joking? See, this is what begins to get worked out. The Holy Spirit will not only comfort you and lead you into all truth, he's saying to this original group of Jewish people that believe Jesus from Nazareth is the Messiah, that he will empower you to witness to even those that you hate and begin to witness to those that you think, I don't love, that's God speaking, or I don't even really want to save. And it's going to take the Holy Spirit not only to change you to love your enemies, but even to see your own need at the same time. <laughs> Not by voting, and not by violence, and not making one group look like the other group, and not by the manipulation, and not by forced conversion, but by the Holy Spirit. Self-sufficiency, self-confidence, always kills the Christian movement. We can never be sent out to overcome all the non-stop barriers. Our own stuff, ethnic stuff, religious stuff, political... Nope. Jesus says, I'm not sending you in your own power. I'm not sending you in your own ability. I'm not sending you with religious ability. I'm sending you with the fruit of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. You're sent out on God's mission, which the Holy Spirit's already involved in. You're just joining Him. So it started in Jerusalem, we know this. Then it spread to Judea and then unexpectedly to Samaria. But now the ends of the earth begin to come into focus. Acts 8, 26. Now the angel of the Lord, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, that is the desert road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Okay, let's just pause for a second. I'm preaching this right now in November 2023. The very environment that this takes place is literally what we're watching on our social feeds right now with the attack from Hamas and the retaliation of the Jewish state. Like all the violence and the chaos and the politics and the anger and the... This is happening in this very environment. I mean... Talk about God's timing to see where the true Prince of Peace actually is and what the real answer is actually to all this stuff that is actually unresolvable. So God sends an angel, a holy messenger, and gives a very specific task to Philip. Now Philip, when he chooses to obey this, which I'm sure glad he did, this decision, this one little decision, has had influence for over 2,000 years. 
Philicus commanded by an angel, by a god, God by an angel that is, to go south to this desert road. This is the road between Jerusalem and Gaza, right along the Mediterranean coast. Now, south can also be translated noonday. So the command is really weird. Basically, this is what God, by an angel, says to Philip. I want you to go out on the worst day, uh, on the worst part of the day, in desert-like conditions, under the harsh noonday sun, and I just want you to sit there and wait. And he obeys. Oh, by the way, let me just do this, not in my notes. Do you see why we always talk about Jesus being modeled here? Philip waits for the prompting, then obeys and builds the plan. Jesus modeled permission-based ministry. Here's a great example. So Philip obeys. And watch this. Philip, we miss this when we read this quick, leaves a thriving, amazing, are you joking me, I want to stay here forever, ministry in Samaria. And oh, guess where he goes? He goes back to, to the Judean foothills. He reverses the trend. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, now back to Judea. He leaves this amazing thriving ministry because God tells him to. So watch the power of this. The Samaritans have now been included in God's family. Generations of hate, mistrust, violence have been overcome by the message, the power, the presence of the living Jesus. Big crowds, big miracles, tons of baptisms, big things. And then God says, for you, Philip, you're done now. Thank you so much for your service. It's time to leave the big and the exciting and the amazing. I need you to go do the small thing because I'm going to turn it into a big thing again. So off you go. Verse 27. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Okay, huh. we're going to really slow down here. Because that verse is filled with so much. Okay, so first of all, this guy is Ethiopian, but he belongs to a kingdom that no longer exists today called the Kingdom of Moreau. This was made up of southern Egypt and modern Sudan as we know it. Now, he's not Jewish, but he's a man of great power. He's the COO or the, the Minister of Finance, you could say that, of this kingdom. Now, why is that a big deal? Because at this time, 2,000 years ago, this nation was really wealthy. It was a wealth, uh, one of the most wealthy nations in history in that time. It had tons of natural resources, iron and gold. It became a key trading post in the ancient world. He's the head financial officer for the whole nation. He's got major access, major influence, major money, major politics, major responsibility, and there's more. Then we find out he's Ethiopian, he's in charge of a massive treasury, and then we find out he's a eunuch. Now, some of you are going, I don't know what a eunuch is. Okay, well, a eunuch is when a guy is castrated. That means that he has his testicles removed. I think right across the whole movement, a bunch of men just sort of did this. They're like, oh, okay. So the question you got to ask is, why was he castrated? He wasn't born this way. Well, in the ancient world, eunuchs were used for key positions within the government for one critical reason. They had access to the royal family and thus access to the royal line. This was about keeping the royal line protected. See, if someone had an affair with someone in the royal line or there was a sexual assault that happened, 
The royal line's not only threatened, it could be contaminated, which is disastrous for the whole nation, because that's how kings and queens come about. So he's working for this woman named Candace, Queen of the Ethiopians. Now, her full historical title, by the way, is Queen Mother, Ruling Monarch of the Ethiopians. So she was in charge of the kingdom of Meroe. She, this was, she ran the thing. She cared for the duties of state, and she ran the whole kingdom. Now, here's the reason why she ran the kingdom. The king in this, in this context, in this time, was considered a godchild of the sun. He was too sacred, too holy, too childlike to engage in the administration or the duties of running the country. Now, don't do this, but a small group of, uh, I think, wives across the movement went, oh, I've got a godlike son at home who doesn't engage in the duties of running the kingdom. Don't hit the person beside you. That's not good for unity. Okay, so you've got this guy who's the king who is basically a religious symbol of being a god. You've got this incredible woman leader who's running this nation. And you've got this man who's in the center of power, not Jewish, powerful position, wealth. He's a eunuch. And interestingly enough, then there's just this throwaway line. And oh, by the way, this guy had gone to Jerusalem to worship. This well-educated, pious figure wanted to worship the true living God. Even though he works in a pagan system, he served a king that actually said he was a godlike thing, he wants to worship the true living God. And he knows that the God of the Jews is the true living God. So he goes, as a non-Jewish person, to encounter the true living God. But as he would have arrived, more pain and more barriers would have popped up. See, when he would have come to Jerusalem to worship, he would be told he would never be able to access God's community fully, and he would never know God personally and fully. This man is a legit seeker. Like, he's all in. He's not a skeptic. This isn't some political play. He's not there to try to make trade agreements. No, no. He is a genuine seeker, but he would never be fully included, ever. Okay, why? Two reasons. First, he's not Jewish. Uh, there were people who were called God-fears. They converted to Judaism. He might be one of them. Good chance he is. So if they came to the gorgeous ancient temple of the Jews in Jerusalem, there was a specific place, it was called the Court of the Gentiles, the Court of Non-Jews, where they could worship the true living God. Now here's the interesting thing, if you've ever seen the temple complex, the Court of the Non-Jews, the Gentiles, was the outermost courtyard, and it was the only area in the temple where non-Jews were allowed to worship. Non-Jews were allowed to enter this Court of the Gentiles, and it was the farthest thing away from the heart of the temple. So you've got the court of the Gentiles way, way back there, and then you've got the court of Jewish women, and the court of Jewish men, and then you go and get farther and farther, and then there's all these religious places where priests get to go, and then there's the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies where only the high priest goes in once a year. So the high priest has full access to God, and then you've got priests, and then you've got men, and then you've got women, and then you've got all the non-Jews way, way, way back there. Now, it's interesting. They were forbidden, non-Jewish people, to enter any farther than that outer court. The inner court, temple courtyards, were enclosed by balustrades, and they had entrance, on the entrances, there were literal signs, historians tell us, that were posted in Greek and Latin, warning any foreigner or anyone who was uncircumcised, because that's the sign of the Jewish faith, that if they crossed from this courtyard into any other courtyard, they would be put to death. 
So you can worship God, and we're really glad you know he's the true living God, but you do it as far away as possible because you're never an insider. And actually, you're going to know him but not know him. Second of all, he's a eunuch. And interestingly, traditional Jewish law said that eunuchs were impure, disgraceful, and cut off from God's covenant people. Leviticus 21, Deuteronomy 23, say they will never be caught part of God's people. So this guy's a God-fearer, a non-Jewish person who believes in the one true living God. He's trying to follow as hard as he can, as close as he can, and he can't even get close. But he comes all the way anyway. Now, we should not be shocked, should we? That God, the true living God, is going to introduce himself formally to a eunuch who's banned from full worship because through Jesus, everything's being cleared away. And if you really want to make some really wild connections, when Jesus, before he was executed, was in the temple, do you remember Jesus got really angry and he started throwing over all these money tables? Do you know where all the money tables were? In the court of the non-Jews. Do you remember why Jesus got angry? It's not because it's wrong to sell things in the temple. I've heard that so many times growing up in a conservative church. You should never, in the ancient times, you should never sell tapes and CDs in the lobby because Jesus would, no, 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 no. The reason why it was wrong is A, they were ripping off, people off. But more than that, they set up a market in the only place where non-Jews could encounter the true living God. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 21, it is written in the Old Testament, my house will be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. In other, trans in other parts of the gospel, it says a house of prayer for all nations. God's heart, his promise is to welcome everyone who did not have access before. And this is predicted 740 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Watch the connection between Isaiah, Jesus overthrowing tables, and this guy. Isaiah 56.3. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to God say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. And the foreigner who binds themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. So God had promised that he was going to bring salvation to all nations, not just his own people, the Jewish people, and everyone could have right relationship with the true living God through Jesus, even eunuchs, which were considered impure. That's why Jesus came. It is amazing to me that God's first contact formally with the non-Jewish world in the book of Acts is through the church to an African eunuch. Was Jesus thinking about this very man when he threw over the tables? I wonder if he was. Well, here's how the story keeps going. Verse 28. On his way home, he's sitting in his chariot, reading a book, the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the Spirit of God tells Philip, go, go, it says, go to that chariot, stay near it. Okay, so this is the second time that God speaks to Philip in a very direct way and commands action. Now, it's not an accident, permission-based ministry, right? At the precise moment when Philip heard that he was supposed to go, suddenly a chariot shows up, he's sitting in the New Day sun, what is he doing? It's hot out, watching the ocean, then a chariot, the Holy Spirit says, that's the guy, go. So he runs over and wildly, not wildly, the man is reading a passage that predicts the coming of Jesus. Verse 30, Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. Okay, I want to slow again. This is important. If you're listening, can you just get off your phones and look at the screen for a second? 
Luke, in the Gospel of Luke and Act, time and time again points out that reading and understanding are not the same thing. Correct understanding is a gift from God. This is for someone today. This is how so many people can sit in church, hear truth from God's Word, listen to Christian podcasts, hear personal testimonies and stories, witness baptisms, hear and participate in worship songs, and yet never truly understand. Yet in God's mercy, not only has He given this man who loves His written Word, His written Word, He now sends someone to help him understand. Because He's worshiping far, He's now going to move from formal, distant, dead religion to an intimate encounter. And this man is the first of billions of us who are not Jewish, who is about to meet the God of the Jews, the one that Adam and Eve used to walk with. So the man says to Philip, well, how can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come in and sit with him. The guy gives an honest response. I love it. I want to understand it. I don't know what it means. I don't even know where to start. Can you help? Do you have the answers? I mean, this is much more than, he's not Googling. I, I love this. He's not just, this is not knowledge gluttony. This is not information for information's sake to get some insider deal or argue with someone. He's longing to know truth. So he takes a chance. Have you thought about this? He takes a chance. He's a man of power. I guarantee the guy is dressed very well. He's sitting in a chariot, which is, you know, the Lamborghini of the day. And he, oh, I love this, humbles himself and ask some unknown wandering man, this Jewish stranger, and says, can you help me understand? Because all this stuff I got isn't working. Can you help me? Humility. Well, the eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture, verse 32. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before the shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. He's reading Isaiah 53, one of the most important passages in the Old Testament predicting what the Messiah would have to do and why he came and what he would look like. The Old Testament prophecy declared that the Messiah, that is the chosen one, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, had to be innocent, would be a righteous sufferer, would be, uh, would be the one who deals with the sin of the world, by taking the place of sinners, would be a substitute where God's wrath would be poured out on him and not on other people. It says in verse 34, well, the eunuch asked Philip, uh, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Okay, don't forget this. At this moment in history, not one word of the New Testament exists. Just the Old Testament. Genesis to Malachi. But Philip, as an Orthodox Greek Jew, knew that Jesus was the one who had done this great work. He knew that Jesus is the key to understanding the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage. Jesus is the righteous sufferer who had been falsely accused, deprived of justice, been cru crucified, was risen from the dead, brought victory over sin, death, and the demonic. And when you repent and trust in him, sins are forgiven. This exchange takes place. And then it says, ah, they traveled along and they came some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why should I not be baptized? The man's response is he gives his life to Christ. And then, of course, I want to evidence it. There's no baptism class. There's no waiting period to see if he really gets it and is really in. He wants this stranger and God to know the seriousness of this life-changing decision. 
So Philip just pauses for a moment. He says, okay, okay, hold on, just to make sure. If you believe with your whole heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and is the Son of God. Over and over again. Okay, I'm going to ask you to look up at me for a second again. This matters. Over and over and over again, all through the book of Acts, basically the same pattern happens with all sorts of different people. They come to faith in similar ways. Here's the first thing they do. They all repent. You can't become a Christian without repentance. Repentance is this. It's, it's admitting, it's sorrow and admission of sin. I am a sinner. I've sinned against myself, others, and God. I've broken his DNA, his law. I'm a sinner. And repentance is not just confession of sin. It's the desire to turn from sin towards God. And then after repentance, there's this thing called belief. Belief is not blind leaping. The word faith means informed, factual trust. And the informed trust is placed in the person of Jesus, that is the Christ, for the forgiveness of sins based on his life, death, and resurrection. There is, as Peter's already said, no other way for salvation except through the shed blood of Jesus. From repentance and belief, then the outward sign is baptism. Since you've crossed the line of faith, Philip says, and since you have given your heart and life to Jesus, you've confessed him as Messiah and Son of God, now you take the outward symbol of the inward thing that's already happened. So they stopped the chariot, verse 38. Then Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. The eunuch did not see him again, and he went on his way rejoicing. And then if you keep reading, Philip goes to another place and starts preaching all through a whole area. Now, <laughs> okay, that phrase, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip, is quite funny. It's not like he sort of came out of the water and, where are you? And he sort of swam away. Basically, to use a Star Trek analogy, I can't believe I'm doing this in a sermon, he basically got teleported. Like, he's just, whoop, gone. Like, he Captain Kirked it. But bye-bye, the Holy Spirit just takes him supernaturally, and he ends up in a different place. And the guy's like, wow, that was weird, but I'm a Christian. Now, here's the incredible thing I just want to point out. That man goes back to, to Ethiopia, and you can trace one of the oldest churches on earth that's still functioning today, and I mean a group of Christians, not just buildings, to this man. This decision by Philip has rippled, and the gospel has been proclaimed in Ethiopia since this moment. What could make an Orthodox Jew sit with a castrated COO African who he had been taught his whole life he should never be in the presence of, sit with, or ever eat with? What would overcome suspicion and culture and different worldviews and misapplied theology and right? Jesus. Within eight chapters, by the way, Jews, Greek Jews, Samaritans, Ethiopians have been included in God's family through the work of Jesus. This is the agenda of God. What worldview provides peace and forgiveness and love and hope that millions are willing to die for and even forgive those who are doing the killing? Jesus. And I just want to point out, this is all happening in the very place where we're seeing the world fall apart again. Luke shows us again and again, God is no respecter of persons. The obstacles of age or religious tradition or race or ethnic origin or economic or educational status or physical condition or sinful history or righteous history will never bar someone from the family of God found in and through Jesus. 
This is what biblical inclusiveness is. Inclusiveness in the Bible is not come as you are and stay as you are and God celebrates everything you are. No, that's not biblical. That's 2023 Westernism. No, inclusiveness in the scriptures is anyone can come home through Christ and be saved and then be transformed. A man, Philip, saved in Jerusalem, helped establish the church in Samaria, led by God back to the foothills of Judea, now introduces the non-Jewish world with the good news. Philip literally is Acts 1-8 incarnate. Okay, we pause there. Uh, a lot of you are watching this online. A uh, while later, maybe you're watching this uh, today, right now, as our online community. You're, some of you are at a site. And uh, this is a baptism Sunday, actually, at many of our sites. So a lot of you probably got dragged to church because of that. So I just want to say this. If you are like this guy and you're a genuine seeker, or you're a skeptic today, you are like, I don't believe any of this stuff, or you're deeply spiritual but unreligious, or, or you're just not religious, you're agnostic or atheist, or maybe you're deeply religious, maybe you belong to another form of faith, here's what God is saying to all of us. The Bible teaches us that we're all spiritual eunuchs, all disgraced, all separated from God, all of us gone our own way. No matter what we do, we cannot cross into relationship with God, let alone find Him. No matter how good you've been, no matter how bad you've been, no matter your money, education, family background, it will never be enough to deal with my sin or your sin before a holy God. The story actually shows us that we have to deal with our sin through Jesus. And this is the scandal, this is the scandal and the offense of Christianity. The orthodox, God-knowing, Bible-caring, devout Jew and the God-searching Ethiopian, and as we'll see next week, Saul the murderer, all need the same salvation with the same same year, and all need the same work, and God's willing to give it to all of them. I mean, here's how Jesus' best friend penned it years later in 1 John 4, verse 9. Uh, this is uh, how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And, and this is love, not that we love God, Oh, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. What I'm about to say next is going to rub some of you the wrong way, but it's actually what God wants to say to you. What must you do to genuinely be saved, to use the old word? You have to be like this Ethiopian eunuch. He admitted he didn't know everything. He had to ask for help. And he had to humble himself. You will never come to faith. You will never find saving or savior or purpose or forgiveness or eternal life until you humble yourself and seek help from the only one that can do that thing for you, which is not in a moral system, and it's not being more religious, and it's not being more educated, and it's not about the advancement of rights. It's found in Jesus. So what do you do with Jesus, and what do you do with your posture? Are your hands crossed? your hands open, it makes an eternal difference. Uh, lots of us listening to this, we are followers of Jesus. What are we hearing here? Well, there's a few things I want to say. Number one, I want to talk about baptism. What is stopping me? The guy said. Baptism is a command of Jesus, and if you've given your life to Jesus, you actually have to be baptized. It's not a choice. The outward declaration is, necess is, is necessary. No matter if you're a brand new Christian, or you've been a Christian for years and decades, don't let fear or laziness or embarrassment or pride 
stop you from this act of faith. Like we say all the time, um, this is my wedding ring, and baptism is like this. Baptism doesn't make me a Christian, just like this wedding ring doesn't make me married, but it is the public declaration, I've given myself exclusively to one person, and I'm off the market. Uh, baptism is an outward symbol of an inward work. It's a symbol of being made clean, being baptized in the Spirit at conversion. It's also a public way of identifying with Jesus' death and resurrection. We read this in Romans 6. Do you not know all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Jesus through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was physically raised uh, from the dead through, uh, through, the glory of, through the glory of the Father, we may have, too may have new life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So in other words, every time someone is baptized, when someone goes into water and comes out, it's a symbol of death and resurrection, old life, new life. It, it's a declaration of everything that makes Christian Christian. So I just want to say this. If you're watching right now and you've never been baptized and you're part of our online community, you need to reach out and say, I need to be baptized. What do I do? Uh, if you're not in our online community and you're watching this at a site right now and maybe you're in a service right now and you're about to witness baptisms and you've not obeyed, literally while people are being baptized, you need to get up and say, I need to be baptized. And I just know our church, there will be towels, there will be bathing suits, you can obey. And if a certain site is not doing baptism, that day you go and say, I need to do this, how can I do this? Listen, this is about freedom, not duty. This is about expressing love to someone who's loved us first. It's time just to have en masse baptisms across our church because we're just following in the footsteps of what we've been commanded and invited to do. Be baptized today, be baptized today. Two last things, and, and this also matters. Philip is told by the Holy Spirit, actually by an angel, sorry, go south. With complete trust and obedience, Philip leaves a thriving ministry. Hundreds of baptisms, miracles, deliverances, large crowds. Peter and John came. It was a pastor's dream come true. I mean, this is what we all want to be part of. But the ongoing move of God matters. Now, if you've, done, if you've been with our church for a while, this is for you. The last time I preached this message was in 2016, this passage. And these are the exact words I said. Are you ready? We used to be called C4 back then as a church. I said, C4, this is timely for us. Within 24 months, God willing, we will have three other sites beyond Ajax. And God is going to ask many of us, not just some of us, many of us, to leave the Ajax site, to make room, to reach out to more people, neighbors, friends, and family, and to leave this historic larger site. Mission over comfort, vision first. God will call some of you to go north to strengthen Port Perry. Hundreds of you will be asked then to go east, maybe towards Oshawa or Bowmanville and west. And at that time, I don't even think we knew what west was. For in those places, this is why I preached in 2016, in those places, uh, there are many people God has already prepared for you to speak to. Now, I just want to pause. Sometimes we need to be reminded, you who are at Pickering, Port Perry, Bowmanville, some of you are online, you need to be reminded today in 2023 that God asked you to go back in 2016 and you obeyed him and you were faithful. A lot of us, now it's a long run in, need to say, yes, Lord, you were the one who asked me to go and I did obey you and I've sort of forgotten that and it's become muddled. Lord, give me joy again that I obeyed you back then so the thing that I'm in now can keep growing. Others of you across our church, God might be saying, I do need you to go other places or other ministries. or and he, This might be a moment where God speaks. What is he saying? This is a moment to recapture not only baptism, it's actually a place to capture some joy. And last thing, it's what Pastor Sam said last week. 
Is God telling you to speak to someone personally about Jesus? I mean, God is working on people long before we ever get close to them. I mean, this man, think about it, was already worshiping, already reading his Bible, and longing for more and didn't know where to go. Philip was the last in the long line of sort of like this chain of events. It's divine conspiracy. We just need to be ready to bring others who sort of know or don't know. God's always at work. Not fear, but courage. Not fear, but Holy Spirit prompting. I'm just going to say this. Is God bringing to your mind someone you're supposed to speak to? If so, trust that he's already working there. So let's end this moment in prayer as we get ready to respond across all of our sites. Number one, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Spirit, true living God, that you sent that angel to speak to Philip. Thank you for Philip's obedience. Thank you that our, our brother that we'll hang out with in the new heavens and the new earth said yes to you in that chariot. So a few things. Number one, for all the seekers and skeptics and all the different diversity of people among us who don't yet know, open their eyes. Move them from knowing to knowing. Um, just do this in Jesus' name. Help them to be humble and encounter you. Uh, for others of us, Lord, uh, help us. Uh, there's some people wrestling right now. I, uh, embarrassment, pride, shame, baptism. Help them to obey baptism. May there be freedom now in Jesus' name across our church to obey a baptism, to celebrate the goodness of God. Our Lord, restore joy to many people who obeyed like Philip years ago. May you give the joy of the Lord back to many people in this moment. And for others that you are about to speak to or are speak to about other things, let it be clear and holy. And lastly, Lord, bring to, bring to mind people we're supposed to witness to if it's so called. Lord, continue to build this ecosystem found in this passage of what you're up to. And don't let it be disturbed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is what we pray together in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There, you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. All right, I pray you're blessed by the word and we'll see you next week.